morning, if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 15. We'll be looking at verses 16 to 39 that John read for us earlier. Now, before we get there, would you pray with me? Jesus, uh, we thank you for this day. Um, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing to you, that you would speak to us this morning through me or despite me. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about uh, the story that is told in the Bible. It's a story of a king and his kingdom and how this overarching story is a way for us to look at the Bible, to look at scripture. It's a story that's told by numerous authors and editors. It's a story we've been moving toward uh, and we are getting to this final part of the story. We started with talking about how God at the beginning of the Bible is king. He creates everything. He establishes his kingdom, um, and he wants to work with his creation to bring about further beauty and order. But then in 1 Samuel, the people of God say, we want a human king like everybody else, and they reject God as their king. And this is often where you and I live when we're not living According to God's plan, when we're trying to do our own thing and, and God warned the people of Israel that that's not going to work out well for them, it's not going to go the way they think it's going to go, it's not going to turn out that well. Last week, we talked about how our stories become part of the king and his kingdom story. When we uh, decide that we are going to follow Jesus, the king, and we saw a demonstration of that as six individuals were baptized and, and committed to seeing Jesus as king and having their story kind of bound up in God's story. And so this week we're going to talk about Jesus as king, Jesus Christ as king. There's lots of places that we could go in scripture to find Jesus' kingship. This morning our call to worship was out of Isaiah. It's in the Old Testament, one of the prophets looking forward to see how uh, things are going to turn out. Looking forward to a new kind of king who's going to come and reclaim the throne. Now, Isaiah probably didn't know exactly what that was going to look like. But he had hope as he looked forward. One of Jesus' favorite topics to talk about, the thing he talked most about, was the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Jesus is given the title of Messiah or Christ. Messiah is the Hebrew version. Christ is the Greek version. But they both mean anointed one. It brings to mind the imagery of, of a king being anointed uh, before he, uh, to kind of signify that he is becoming the king. Several months ago, we looked at Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem uh, as a parody of most kings that would enter a city as they would come uh, after a great battle. They would enter the city on a great war horse, but Jesus enters the city on a borrowed donkey. And the people proclaim, Hosanna, Hosanna, but it's a different kind of king. But this morning I want to focus in on the climax of this whole story, Jesus' crucifixion. It's the lowest 
moment in the biblical story. It's the part where it seems all hope may be lost. In Samuel, the people of God rejected him as their king, but now they are putting God to death. They are executing God himself. In the midst of this, something beautiful is happening. My kids and I have been uh, reading through the Chronicles of Narnia in the last uh, couple years. And uh, how many of you are familiar with this book? All right, you've got an assignment. Those of you that haven't read this book, go to the library this afternoon, check out all the copies they have, and read this story. It's a beautiful story. The Chronicles of Narnia were written by C.S. Lewis, uh, who is a a Christian that lived in England right around uh, World War II. And he wrote this series to help explain to his grandchildren uh, some very deep theological thoughts. And uh, right now, uh, the boys and I are reading through The Last Battle, uh, which is a story just dripping with theology uh, out, of, out of the Bible. It's a, just a beautiful story. But the primary book, the one that C.S. Lewis wrote first, although it's not really the first in the series chronologically, is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, I brought this book up in our new members class a couple weeks ago, and not all of them had read it. I said, oh, you've got to go read this story. Uh, it's a beautiful story. In the book, Aslan is a lion. He is the king of the beasts, and he is the Christ figure. Aslan ends up paying the price for a treachery that he did not commit. And in the story, the white witch, who's the antagonist, holds Aslan to the law and to a deep magic in which traitors are her lawful prey and yet the witch is unaware of a deeper magic she's unaware of something deeper and more ancient than her and even as she appears to be winning a long sought after victory over the lion something deeper something more beautiful is happening I won't spoil the story for those of you who are going to go out and read that book Uh, Suffice it to say that that's not the end of the story. Something is happening amidst the pain and the death that we see on the surface. And this is the case of the text this morning from Mark chapter 15. We recognize it as a familiar story to many of us. If you've been around a church for any length of time, you've heard the story of Jesus' crucifixion. We've heard it time and time again. We know the ending. We know that Jesus rises from the grave conquering sin and death. And Sorry, spoiler alert for those of you who haven't read ahead in this biblical story. Something more beautiful is happening amidst the torture, the pain, and the death. Ancient rabbis, Jewish rabbis, had a way of talking about Scripture. They, they would talk to their students as though the Bible were a diamond that had many different faces to that diamond. And if they just turned that diamond slightly, the light would refract off that diamond in a new way and they might see new beauty in that diamond by just turning it a little bit. And they would talk about Scripture, the, the Word of God living and, and breathing. If we just turn it slightly, we see new beauty. Or else we could talk about the Bible having different layers and we can read it at different layers. The 
great theologian Shrek and Donkey talked about things, understanding layers of things. Shrek talked about the onion. The donkey preferred to think of a par parfait. Have you ever met somebody that says, I don't like no parfait? <laughs> so let's look at a different level of this story. If you have your bulletin, on the left side of your sermon notes is a column called Caesar's Coronation. This is called the, historically this was called the Triumphus. This is the way that Caesar was crowned king. Okay? The first step in this coronation process was that the entire cohort of praetorian guards would be assembled around the person who was to be made emperor. Next, the candidate would be given a purple robe and would be given a laurel crown and a scepter. The guard would proclaim the majesty of the one to be made emperor. Remember, he wasn't just being crowned king. He was also being crowned a god or a son of God. The guard would bow down and pay homage to the new emperor. They might kiss him. They might proclaim how great he is. And then they would begin a parade, a procession. And in this procession, that there would first be the candidate, whoever the new emperor Caesar was going to be, and behind that emperor would be a bull, a sacrificial bull. And behind the bull would be a slave carrying an axe in order to sacrifice the bull. And as this parade started out, they would be headed to the highest hill in Rome, which was the Capitoline Hill. It's translated Head Hill, where the Capitolium Temple stood. And when they finally reached this temple, which might take hours or it could take days of celebrating and, and just welcoming this new emperor, when they finally got to the temple, before the altar, the candidate would be given a, a glass of wine mixed with myrrh. It was called fine wine. It was an aromatic a mixture that was given to the to-be emperor. And he would refuse that drink, and he would hand it to the slave, and the slave would refuse that drink, and then the slave would pour the glass onto the bull. It symbolized the connection between that emperor-to-be and the, the sacrifice of the bull. Immediately after the wine was dumped on the bull, it would be sacrificed. And then the emperor-to-be would take his second-in-command and his third-in-command, and they would ascend to the throne in the temple. The crowd would hail the new emperor. They would proclaim how great he was. They would bow down and pay homage to him. And then they would try and, it, it was best if there was some kind of divine seal of, of approval from the gods, which usually meant they released some doves from cages hidden or something like that. Uh, historians believe that one of the emperors, the, his coronation coincided with a uh, solar eclipse. And this was seen as the gods' approval of this new emperor, this new god, this new son of God. 
Now we go back to our story in Mark. And here's how Mark tells the crucifixion story. Verse 16. The whole cohort is called together in the praetorium in Jerusalem. This is more than enough soldiers to come in and, and beat a common Jew. Mark's pointing out that they all come together. This governor's headquarters in, in the Greek is praetorium. Then verse 17. The soldiers dress Jesus in purple and they place a crown of thorns on his head. They mean to make fun of him. They are doing it in mockery. Verse 18 and 19, the soldiers mockingly pay homage to Jesus, hailing him as king. They're making a joke out of it. Rather than kissing the new emperor, they spit on him. Rather than handing the scepter to him, they beat him with it. Verse 20 and 21, a procession begins. And Simon of Cyrene is pulled from the crowd to carry the instrument of sacrifice. Mark's the one that points out that Simon is pulled from the crowd. Because Mark's trying to get us to hear something a little different. Simon takes the cross. Jesus, the king to be, is also the sacrifice to be. In verse 22 then, the procession goes to Golgotha. It's a new kind of head hill, the place of the skull. Some uh, Bible translators would argue that Golgotha actually means head hill or place of the head. And uh, Calvary, uh, which we often use also, is more directly uh, place of the skull. Either way. We're headed towards Head Hill, a new kind of Head Hill. In verse 23 then, Jesus is offered wine mixed with myrrh, which he refuses. And then Mark skips all other details. What comes next? And they crucified him. See, Mark's audience has seen and heard about how Caesar is crowned. By the time Mark writes this, there was a, a Caesar right before the time of Jesus. There's a new emperor uh, right after the time of Jesus. They've heard this story. And so as Mark tells this, they're going, I've heard this before. I've heard this before. This sounds a lot like what happened with Caesar. Maybe this is a new kind of king. Maybe Mark's trying to tell us something about who Jesus is. A sign is raised declaring Jesus' kingship. He's mockingly hailed by the crowd. And then Jesus ascends. And how does Jesus ascend? On a cross. And Mark points out that one is raised on his left and one is raised on his right, common thieves, making a mockery of Caesar's coronation. Darkness comes and covers the earth in the middle of the day. The temple curtain is torn from top to bottom, not 
bottom to top. That's how a human would go in and rip this giant, thick curtain. It's ripped from top to bottom. Only God can rip that curtain. It is God's divine seal of approval. And then in verse 39, a centurion, a Roman, makes the final declaration of the royalty and the divinity of Christ the king. He says, truly this man was God's son. He's looked on, the centurion. He's seen what's happened. And he knows that something different has just happened. This centurion has probably participated in multiple executions. Multiple crucifixions. He's probably very well acquainted with what death looks like. And yet this stands out to him. And he proclaims, truly this man was God's son. See, I think Mark tells the story in such a way as to highlight the coronation of a new kind of king. Amidst the mockery and the torture and the agony and the impending death that Jesus is facing. Jesus is crowned king. A king that conquers not through taking life, but by giving his own. By surrendering his own life. But even this is not the end. Jesus rises from the dead, defeating the last enemy that's death. Later, Jesus returns to the Father, having initiated the kingdom of heaven. See, I believe Jesus is king now. And I believe the kingdom of heaven has come near. And yet it's not the end. This isn't it. It doesn't take long to look around and say, this isn't fully what the kingdom of heaven is going to look like. But as a church, we are called to live as an outpost of that kingdom. We are called to proclaim that new kind of kingdom. We're supposed to be a little bit of a foretaste of what that kingdom will look like in its fullness. And yet, longing and hoping and, and proclaiming that there is more to come. Jesus promises to return to bring everything under his submission. And then the final chapter of this king and his kingdom story in Revelation gives us a picture of a king who roars like a lion and yet conquers as a slain bloody lamb. He spills his own blood even as the powers of the world are forced to drink the full ramifications of their violence and their bloodshed. And then God recreates a new heaven and a new earth. A new creation in which this current creation is only like a cloudy, dirty mirror. As we've gone through this series, my hope is that we have a little bit of a framework from which to approach reading Scripture together. I said a few weeks ago that the Bible is not just a collection of theological statements. Thank goodness, because I've got some systematic theology books back in my office, and they're boring, all right? This story of the king and his kingdom is far more beautiful, far more beautiful. Rather, Scripture is a collection of stories and poems and wisdom sayings, prophetic dreams, letters, and even apocalypses. 
that come together to form a king and his kingdom story. The Bible isn't a flat book. It is a rising story that finds its climax in Jesus. And here's how this seeing the Bible as story has made a difference for me. How I read the Bible and how I approach life. It's not just a cool thing to say, um, look, at, look at these neat themes that come out. I think it really makes a difference for the way we live our lives and the way we approach Scripture. See, I used to read the Bible to find out what it said about me. To see how I was supposed to live. To see what wisdom or insight I could gain to find the practical implications for my life. But you know what? As I read this story, it's not about me. It's not about me. In fact, I don't appear in it. I'm not in the Bible. I'm not in this story. Well, not directly. <laughs> the story's not about me. It's about a king who reclaims the throne, who conquers his enemies through self-sacrificial love. It's about a king who establishes his kingdom and in the end brings his kingdom plans full circle in revelation from what he wanted in the first chapter of the story, Genesis 1. And this king wants everyone to know how much he loves them. That this king would go to incredible lengths to redeem and restore his image bearers to full relationship with the king. And now here's where I get included and where you get included. The story includes us. The king says, I want relationship with you. I want you to join me in this story. I want you to find that you are not king, that I am, that I have everything under control. And living in this way leads to life, leads to hope. We can be a part of this story. It's just not primarily about me. I hope that reading the Bible this way helps me to let the Bible be the Bible. I can let it tell me the story of who God is. I can read the difficult parts the parts that are weird that I really don't understand, and there's parts of the Bible that I, I open up and I'm like, I don't, I don't really understand what that's about. You take Bible classes and you still go, yeah, I'm not sure what that part's about. And then there's other parts of the Bible that I just really wish weren't there. There's a lot of slaughtering people in the Old Testament. A lot of that. And I'll be honest, I wish it wasn't there. But if I read the Bible as story, I can start to think, how is this pointing me towards Jesus? How is this moving me along in my faith? And even the parts of the New Testament that I wish weren't there, personally. Like the part about taking up my cross. I wish that part wasn't there. Because it doesn't seem that, to go that well for Jesus at the beginning, right? Right? And so Jesus tells us to take up our cross daily and follow him. And that's really hard. And frankly, I'd rather have an easier life. But I can choose what kind of story I'm going to live into. And living in that story of a king and his kingdom is so much better. 
It's a beautiful story. It's a captivating story. It's a story in which each of us are invited to participate. This is the story of a king and his kingdom. This is the story we're invited to be a part of. Amen.